It's Mark Yegi here, wealth architect and lifestyle investor. Let's take your life to the next level. Welcome to the Wealth Architect Podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Yegi. I'm so glad you're here. Listen, um, I get a lot of questions about investing. Obviously, it's the Wealth Architect Podcast. We talk about wealth, financial freedom, Bitcoin, stock market, bonds, the macro environment. We talk about a lot of things that have to do with your wealth and try to put the pieces together so you can architect your future. That's what we're about here. But one of the questions I get most often is, what is Bitcoin? What is Bitcoin? Such a great question. And it shouldn't be that complicated. But you know what? It's new. So it is. It's like when the internet came out, that was new. It, when the car came out and it was replacing horse and buggies, everybody understood what horse and buggies were. But they were like, how does this thing work? You put gasoline in it. What's gasoline? You know. And so Bitcoin has kind of got that. But once you start to get into it, you realize it's not that complicated. You can make it complicated. Trust me on that. So what this is going to be doing, we're going to do a series of kind of explainer videos to show you that we have uh, an interesting perspective on Bitcoin and why it should be interesting to you. So I, I don't, you know, you've heard me say this, it should be a part of your investing portfolio. This is opinion. It's for educational purposes and informational purposes. So don't take this to the bank. But, you know, I, I have it as part of my portfolio and I have it for the customers and the friends that I have. I think that they should have uh, Bitcoin as well. So I thought I'd take a, a series to explain Bitcoin and what Bitcoin might mean to you. And I'm going to try to simplify it because Bitcoin doesn't have to be complicated. I've spent thousands of hours now interviewing people about Bitcoin, understanding Bitcoin, buying it, protecting it, moving it to wallets, all the stuff that's, you know, a year ago, two years ago was like, what is all that? Now I'm like, okay, I get it. It's all crystal clear to me. And I want it to be crystal clear for you. So hopefully you're going to watch this series of videos because it's going to be video format. It's also going to be audio format on the wealtharchitectpodcast.com. But if you can get over to the Mark Yegi team YouTube channel, you're going to see uh, the Wealth Architect podcast there and you're going to see a playlist and it's going to have these Bitcoin videos in it under what's, what is Bitcoin. So uh, that's the stage that we're going to set. I'm going to break them up into fairly small videos so that you can consume them in five or 10 minute segments. And then you can move on to the next one once you get the first one. Okay, kind of like a course. So I'm going to put it out in course fashion. Hope you're going to get it. I'm having fun doing this because it's really reinforcing what I've learned. And I'm trying to make it really simple so that you can understand it. And um, I hope you like it. Here we go. So what is Bitcoin? Well, I'm glad you asked. All right, so we're going to start to explain what Bitcoin is. But first, before we understand what Bitcoin is, I want to give you an explanation of what money is. Now, there's lots of different explanations, but I think I've boiled down into some critical components of what money is. So let's start. What is money? Well, money is value. Plain and simple, it's value. Now, where does it get its value? Well, it gets its value. It's stored value, right? It's sitting in a dollar bill, or it's sitting in a gold coin, or it's sitting in a Bitcoin, or it's sitting in a piece of property. There's stored labor there. There's stored value. There's stored work. Remember that word work, because we're going to get to that when we get to Bitcoin. So that's what money is. Money is essentially stored labor. Now, in the past, we used to use barter. So if you wanted to buy something, you would, and you were a great deerskin maker, right? Or you're a great hunter and you had deerskins in your family or whatever, you could sell deerskins, but you didn't sell them because you didn't have a monetary currency to exchange. So you would exchange them with barter. You would go find somebody that had some food and you would say, hey, I want some vegetables. I want some tomatoes and corn or whatever. And they would say, great, here's some tomatoes and corn. And you would give them a deerskin. Problem is, after a while, they have enough deerskins that's going to keep them warm for the winter. They don't need any more deerskins. So either they're going to collect the deerskins and be able to trade them for what they need. Maybe they need a massage, 
Okay, going back in the caveman era, did they have massages? I don't know, but maybe they needed a massage. So they went to the massage therapist. The massage therapist said, I'll give you a massage. You give me one of those deer hides. But after a while, the massage therapist had all these deer hides and they're like, I don't need them. Well, it's a little bit tough now to start moving deer hides around. And so it ended up becoming less from barter and more toward there needed to be something that filled the void of money, of currency. And the word currency, by the way, comes from current, right? Which means flow. And so that's what it means. Like when you get something that flows, it has velocity, right? A river flows, it has velocity. Electricity flows, it has velocity. And so the more velocity you have, the more productive you have, and that ties back to energy. So societies all are made and lost by the amount of energy that successfully consume. That's a different issue. And I'm going to be having a lot of tangential issues, but this will all come together in probably the fourth video. So stay tuned. When you watch the fourth video, it's all going to start to come together, but I'm, I'm planting these little seeds, work, stored labor, um, you know, some of those things, currency. All right. So let's keep going. So now currency is based on trust. So if somebody doesn't need the deer hide, then they, they you come up with some other form of exchange. Well, there's a lot of water under that bridge that needs to be gapped, right? To be, to be able to figure out what happens in that currency state. So I want you to think in your mind, three things, gold, paper money, and Bitcoin as we go through the next few videos, okay? Gold, paper money, which I know you're familiar with, and Bitcoin, which maybe you're not, maybe you are, maybe this is just review. Keep those in mind. Let's start with gold, right? Who to trust is essentially the theme of what I'm going to talk about with gold, but gold based on that trust issue has certain pros and cons. Let's start with the pros. First of all, gold is measurable, right? You can weigh gold, an ounce of gold has got some value, right? And you can measure that value as long as it's real gold. There's a question there, but as long as it's real gold, it's measurable, right? It's recognizable. You see it, you know it's gold, or you believe it's gold. It's got that pretty color, and you can you can smash it, and it melts down, you know, it, it's malleable. It's recognizable. So you can show up, you know, across the world and show somebody some gold, and they go, I know what that is. That's gold, right? We all agree. It's an element, right? So it's it can't be created can't be destroyed. In fact, some of the gold that you may be wearing today is thousands of years old. It could have been worn by a pharaoh before it was melted down and put into your earrings, as an example. So it's, it's, it doesn't go away. It doesn't decay. Very critical that it doesn't go away. It's also pretty scarce, not 100% scarce, but pretty scarce. There's not a lot of gold going around. They say that the amount of gold in the world that's been mined today can fit in two Olympic-sized swimming pools. I don't know if it's true or not. It doesn't seem very true to me. seems like there's a lot more gold than that, but okay, we'll go with it. So it's pretty scarce, and nobody needs to vouch for it. Like, you know it's gold. You don't need anybody to stand up and go, hey, by the way, this is gold. Put you in touch with Grimsrud. Yeah, well, he had a buddy there. He, uh... I don't vouch for him. Well, that's okay. I vouch for Grimsrud. Who's his buddy? Uh, Carl something. Never heard of him. Don't vouch for him. Uh, you know, you can tell. You don't need that person to, to, to do that. It's kind of decentralized in that way. There's no authority that says that's gold. That there isn't. You can bring in authorities to weigh it, measure it, do all that stuff. But essentially, you know what I'm saying. It's pretty simple. That's gold. All right. What are some of the cons? Well, the cons are it's not divisible. Like if you carry around a bar of gold, you know, it's going to be worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars as if we denominate it in dollars or euros or yen or, you know, yuan or whatever. But it's not divisible. You want to buy a Starbucks with a bar of gold, you're going to have to cut the end off that gold. And that's going to not be accurate. You're going to leave gold shavings on the, the plate that you cut it on. It's just 
it's just not very convenient. So they divided it-ish by using silver and other metals, right? But we're talking about gold. It's not really divisible. Even a gold coin, a one ounce gold coin today is worth about 1500 bucks, 1700 bucks, something like that. So you're not going to buy your Starbucks with it. Plus Starbucks would be like, I'm sorry, we don't accept gold here. We don't know if it's real and we don't weigh, weigh it, measure it and all that kind of stuff, right? It's also not transportable because it's so heavy. You're not going to take all your wealth. Let's say you have a couple million dollars, $10 million of wealth and you have it stored in gold. What are you going to do? Like hire 10 guys to carry the vault, you know, the safe with you with all the heavy gold. Like it's, it doesn't happen. Think about Afghanistan. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago when we left Afghanistan, all the wealthy people in Afghanistan who had money in the bank, they lost it because the banks closed and they confiscated their money. If you're able to put in gold and flee Afghanistan and go across the border, they might have stopped you at the border and said, give me all your gold with a gun, right? You gave them all your gold. And you lost everything you had. So it's not easily transportable. There are other solutions, which we'll be talking about. It's often hard to verify. So we talked about how you measure it and how you weigh it. But is it really gold? And there were, that gave rise to the alchemists. Alchemists were like, we're going to build gold. We're going to create it. We're going to make this fool's gold. We, you know, there's all kinds of things that came about that caused doubt in the gold market. Now, we're pretty much past that because we have you know, electronic microscopes and things like that that can verify whether it's gold. But it is hard for the naked eye to verify at Walmart. Like You're not going to trust that person to accept gold for your transaction. So that's a, that's a drawback. And the other one is that I will say, even though it's pretty scarce, the supply is not unlimited. And here's the proof of that. Gold miners exist, right? And since gold miners go into the earth and they mine gold and they sell it for a profit, they're getting more gold out. So there's always more gold. You pay enough money, somebody's going to mine it, right? We would, if, it, if we found all the gold already, there wouldn't be anybody mining it. So since there are miners, there, there's a profit motive. Therefore, it's not unlimited. There's an ever-growing amount of gold you know, in the world. It's probably 2% a year, something like that. But it's growing, right? And the more expensive gold gets, the more people are going to go to try to mine it deeper and deeper in the mines and spend money to do it. Make sense? Okay. So that's gold. Now, gold as money. Here's the history of how gold was accepted as money. So way in the past, and I'm not going to, I'm going to probably fast forward to the future because it's a little easier to understand, but in the past, um, you know, somebody would have to vouch for gold as your money. And again, we had trouble making a transition. Like we didn't want to carry all that gold around and then get robbed of it and all that kind of stuff. And plus it was heavy and hard to transport and not divisible, all those other things. So, you know, let's fast forward to the 20th century here. And we went to the government and said, Hey, uh, you know, the government said, let's, let's create a standard called the gold standard. And we put everybody on the gold standard. And basically what that meant was, if you want to use gold as money, we have a way. We're going to create paper money, but the government is going to vouch for the gold equals paper money. Okay. And th the drawbacks of gold forced it to go to paper money, right? The transportability, the divisibility, all those things. And so now the banks said, and the government said, you know what? We have gold. If you want your gold, you can come give us that certificate and we'll give you your gold. If you want to bring us gold, you'll put the gold in and we'll give you the certificate. So it's always an exchange. So the bank and the government are always backing this fake note, right? This piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper that costs three cents to make, but it represents a lien on that gold, right? So that was always accepted. The problem was, my, my dad used to say, if you ever sit, have somebody sitting next to a pile of money, they want to spend it. Because human nature wants to do 
what's individualistically correct, okay? So we have this piece of paper. And if you look on the screen, there is a, a $10 gold coin certificate. And this is now an exchange of gold. So you would take this paper and now the paper, you can put it in your pocket and you can you know, divide it from a $10 bill to a $5 bill, to a dollar bill, to a 50 cent piece, right? To a 25, to a five, to a nickel, all the way down, right? So you can divide this thing. Now this has got some huge advantages and it's vouched for by the bank. The bank says, hey, you bring us this certificate, we'll give it back to you in gold right? No problem. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's what we stand behind. And that's great. That's a good system. And you can even look at the bottom of this, of this certificate. And it says redeemable for $10 in gold. Read the top where it says this certifies that there have been deposited in the treasury of the United States of America, $10 in gold coin, right? It certifies that this now money is stood behind by the government. It says the certificate is legal tender in the amount of all debts, public and private. As of March 4th, 1900, as amended in December 1919. All right. So this is a 1922 $10 bill or $10 gold coin bill, however you want to look at it. And it's redeemable. There's value there, right? As long as there's somebody vouching for it, and as long as you can go get that gold, there's value. But things started to change because somebody was sitting next to a pile of money and they were like, huh, you know what? We got a war coming up. We're going to need that gold to finance this war. And the government in the U.S., it's been happening. It's happened many, many, many times with gold. That's the problem with gold sometimes. The government made having gold illegal in the 30s, right? So they said, if you have an ounce of gold, we're going to give you $35 or $35.20. I don't remember what the number is, something like that, whatever. It doesn't matter. Even though it might be worth more and because it was becoming more scarce, it was going up. But the US government now broke the trust. And they said, you bring us your gold. Otherwise, it's a felony. But if you do, we're going to do you a favor and we're going to give you 35 bucks. So everybody ran into the bank and gave them all their gold. And the central bank basically took all the bank's gold and supposedly put it in Fort Knox. Now, it's never been audited. We don't know how much is in there. The rumor is there's nothing in there. Maybe it's full of gold. We don't know. That's a problem. It's not transparent. It's not able to be audited. It's not authentic. We don't know if it's true or not that there's gold and there's uncertainty. And whenever there's uncertainty, there's opportunity and there's also doubt, right? So that doubt is in the market. It's a broken trust. The government like told me they would back it up. And now they said, now they're confiscating my gold. They're giving me money for it. I guess that's cool. But if I don't give it to them, I go to jail. That's not cool. All right. Let's fast forward a few years, 40, 40 years. And finally, the government realized because they started to make extra money, they had to finance wars and pay, the, pay, for, pay for the wars. They had to you know, provide for the soldiers when they came back under the GI Bill. They had to pay for all these things. So instead of levying taxes and being responsible with the budget, it was a lot easier just to have the Fed, which was created in 1913, print money. So the Fed just created more money. And then in 1971, under President Nixon, the government said, gosh, what if everybody like starts to get, want to get their gold because gold is now, now legal again? What if they come in and they want to you know, get their gold again? We don't have, like if everybody comes in at the same time, we don't have the gold. Like we don't have enough. We've been printing this extra money, but we haven't been buying gold with it. Like we've been buying bombs and stuff with it. <sighs> Let's go off the gold standard. So Nixon in 1971 took us off the gold standard. And that was the second time, I think, that we've had broken trust in the dollar. It's supposed to be the full faith and credit of the government, but you can already see twice that I've showed you within a 50-year period that the government has breached the trust. So they say the United States has never defaulted on its loans, never defaulted on its debt. 
But here's proof that they're defaulting on their debt because they're changing the terms unilaterally without checking with the other side. They're saying, ah, if you want your money in gold, we're not going to give it to you. We're going to give it to you in, in currency. Okay. So the other thing is that nobody really knows how much gold anybody has or any central bank has. It's a little bit mis mysterious and mystifying what's going on out there. Okay. So we've got that broken trust. Now we've moved to a paper money system. It's strictly paper money. And now we create a, because we created some major benefits, unfortunately, we also created some negative effects. And one of those is called centralization. Money is now controlled by the central bank. One guy or one group of people or the federal government, but, but not everybody. It's controlled by a centralized authority, right? Somebody that wakes up in a bad mood can make a wrong decision and we all have to live with it. Now, Additionally, it's unlimited and scarcity starts to erode. Now, scarcity is a very important component of money. Scarcity is what allows money to hold its value. Now, think about it for a second. If I gave you a rose, oh, how nice a rose you gave me. This is so sweet. And I gave you a rose. And if I gave you a rose the next day, now you'd still be like, oh, this is really great. Now, if I gave you one the next day, you'd be like, this is, this is nice. And then if I gave you 10,000 roses and it filled up your room and you couldn't get into your bed, now you're like, get all these stupid roses out of the way. Like you don't need them. So when they're scarce, when there's one or two, it's really nice. But when there's too many of them and you don't need them, right, they lose their value. And so when things start to lose, they start to become unscarce, right? When they start to become plentiful, air is plentiful. Water is pretty plentiful. Like we don't pay much for air, right? We just go and we get in all the air that we need and it's free right? So we don't value it. We're not going to pay somebody. If somebody comes to the door and says, hey, I want to sell you some air, we're not going to pay for it, right? Because it's, it's not scarce. But try to, try to give somebody a glass of water after they've been in the desert for five days. They'll pay any amount of money for that glass of water. So you see the difference between scarcity and non-scarcity? That's what happened with paper money. It became unscarce, became unlimited, and when there's an infinity as the denominator, it screws everything up. And you're going to learn that in this series. So now paper money is transportable, which is cool. It's divisible, which is cool. It's recognizable, which is awesome. It's easy to verify. You can look at it. You can see the little strip in it. You could see that there's value there because, you know, there's a dead president or a dead guy on there or whatever. And so you understand that that's money. You're accepted, right? And you'll allow it to be bought and sold and used for your goods. And you can use it for your goods. That's currency. Now it's flowing, right? The negatives are that it's centralized and unlimited and it affects scarcity when it's no longer limited. Remember that I'm going to talk about the next video. All right. So that proves this proved that rose theory that I showed you is proven right here. So in uh, January of 1913, and this chart only goes up about 100 years, but you can see the dollar had a base value of, say, well, let's just use a base currency value of 100. $100 was worth $100, okay, in purchasing power. Could buy $100 worth of goods. I don't know if you remember, but houses used to sell for at $3,000 back then. You could buy them out of a catalog and put them together and build a house for three, dollars $4,000 from Sears. Well, things have gone up in inflationary terms, but if you flip the, if you flip the graph over, you see, here's the, the effects of it. This is what's happened to the dollar in the last hundred years. And I, I'll show you what happens even after that. But this is just a hundred years since its inception. Two, uh, 1913 to 2009, right? When we had our great financial crisis. Look at the de erosion of value of the purchasing power of the dollar. It went from a hundred to about four or five, right? Doesn't really matter. It's a pretty big decline of about 95, 96%. 
All right. If you want to look at what's happened since that devaluation that Nixon did in 1971, and he had to do it, by the way, because we were just irresponsible. Our government was printing money. He had to do it. He couldn't tie it to gold anymore. We didn't have the gold to back the dollar. Just in 50 years, it's lost 80 for 85% of its value, right? A dollar was worth a dollar in 1971 and dollar purchasing power back then. But today it's only purchasing about 15 cents worth of goods. And that's just the 2015. I haven't even talked about, which I'll talk about later, the value that we've lost just in the last three years. And we're sitting here right now in 2022. Since 19, uh, 2019, I should say, we've printed more money in those three years than we ever have in the whole history of the United States. Talk about unlimited amount of money. Talk about an infinity sign as the denominator. That's not good. So we've seen a decline in the value of the dollar. But it's not just the dollar, it's any fiat currency. And by the way, fiat means by decree. The government decrees that it's worth this, blah, 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 right? It's a decree. That's what fiat means. So whenever you hear fiat, it just means a bunch of people sitting around a room deciding what the value is going to be. So European inflation has been just as bad in 50 years. Now we flip the, the graph over and you can see $100, you need a you need $1,000 in 2011 to be able to buy $100 what you could buy in 1960. So just 50 years later. So really irresponsible governments tend to do this. So that is the basis for what we're talking about. And I'm going to be talking about Bitcoin in the next episode. But now that you understand money, you're going to start to understand how Bitcoin will play a role in our future version of money because money has evolved. It went from barter and there were other things used, salt and seashells and tulips and all kinds of stuff. Went from barter to those things, to coins, to fiat, to gold, to fiat money, right? To paper money. And now I think there's an evolution that's taking place technologically. And that's the next evolution of money. Check in our next video on Bitcoin and I'll see you there. Thanks. You've been listening to the Wealth Architect Podcast with Mark Yegi. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Share and tell your friends. See you soon. Hey there, it's Mark Yegi. I hope you're enjoying the show. Say, if you're interested in becoming involved in crypto technology, especially Bitcoin, but don't know how to go about it, I have some resources for you to go over on my website wealtharchitectpodcast.com. And if you're a high net worth investor, I have something built especially for you and my other accredited investors. It's a fund specifically dedicated to the exciting future of Bitcoin and crypto. It's called the IntelliGrowth Digital Fund. Hey, listen, I know that if you haven't dedicated a few hundred hours to learning what's going on in Bitcoin space, it can be overwhelming. And that's why me and my team have spent thousands of hours determining the best way to invest whether it's payment networks, storage, Bitcoin as a currency or a store of value, or even just how this technology is changing the world, I firmly believe that Bitcoin and crypto technology is here to stay. So you might as well have some exposure to it before it really takes off. I always tell my investors that we are all going to need to understand Bitcoin. The only question is whether you do it now, while it's also a great investment, or later when billions of people are using it every day, kind of like the internet. Anyway, if you want to find out how to be an investor, drop me a line here, mark at wealtharchitectpodcast.com, and we could see if it's right for your portfolio.